A warm welcome to this first day of Unleavened Bread service. It's a privilege indeed for each one of us to understand and know the truth of God. To understand and realize that God has a great plan of salvation for mankind and this great plan is given to us via the Holy Day season. We understand and realize that this is a very special truth that the Church of God has been given. For years no one understood why it was that the Holy Days were given to mankind. The Jews, for example, uh, have certain understandings and certain meanings for the Days of Unleavened Bread or for Pentecost or for the Day of Atonement but they do not fit into an overall pattern of a development of the plan of salvation for mankind. That is a truth that has been reserved and given to us. And so we should, at this time, as we begin the holiday season all over again, remember the importance of these days. And so it is that today we're going to go through what we might call the meaning of the day. What is the meaning of the first day of unleavened bread? God established these days so that we might be able to become more like our Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Passover service, where we partook of the bread and the wine, were an introduction to the fact that we are to partake of the bread of life daily. That the blood of Jesus Christ, the wine that we partook of, at the Passover service, is to cover our sins. And so we are complete. We have the plan of salvation and the means for the implementation of that plan available to us. And so this afternoon, or if you're playing this in the morning, we are able to consider this important day. As we rehearse these days, let us also consider why we are eating unleavened bread for seven days. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 13. This is the instruction given by uh, God to the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt. You'll remember, of course, that uh, the plagues had uh, been poured out upon the Egyptians and it was with haste that the Pharaoh said to Moses, you know, take your people and go. And so they went out with a high hand. That means with uh, confidence and with boldness because the great God of heaven had saved them from Egypt, which of course is symbolic of sin. So here in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 3 it says, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Now don't you find this rather interesting? That we are rehearsing or remembering the fact that Israel came out of Egypt and suddenly we have this statement, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Why? What did that have to do with coming out of Egypt? Let's read on. On this day you are going out in the month Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, 
that you shall keep this service this month, or in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. You know, some people have thought in the past, well, I don't particularly like eating unleavened bread, so I just won't eat leavened bread and I won't eat any bread. Well, did you read what we just saw there? Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. And no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. So we can see here that God had a plan that he was implementing at this point for a great purpose that would go right down through the centuries from about 1400 uh, BC here, right down to the time of Jesus Christ, so that it would come together at the Passover service where Jesus Christ, Christ ate unleavened bread and drank the wine. And then, of course... <coughs> Uh, he, he, was, he died the next day and he was buried before the night to be much observed as we would keep it and we do observe it began and so for three days and three nights our saviour, our lord was in the grave and he was dead waiting to be resurrected by his father and so we need to be resurrected as well into newness of life. We were baptized into Jesus Christ and so we were resurrected up out of the watery grave of baptism and we are sustained each day by the daily bread, not just the physical daily bread that we eat, but the daily bread of the life of Jesus Christ living in us. And so each day we must ask for our daily bread. We must ask for the life of Christ to be lived in us. And so let us have a look then at another scripture, this time in Leviticus chapter 23 and in verse 6. Leviticus chapter 23 and in verse 6. Most of us are familiar with this, but I know in giving this sermon, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> There are people who are hearing this for the very first time. You've never heard anything about this. And so, when we as ministers of Jesus Christ speak to God's people, we consider those who are new in the faith, those who are learning. And we also consider those who have known it for many years because we are to remember the days of unleavened bread, and we are to remember the Passover and to remember the events of this time. Notice what it says here in Leviticus chapter 23 in verse 6. It says, And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. There it is again. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it. Did you notice that word customary? In the margin of the New King James Version that I have here, 
it says occupational work. In other words, this is the work that you regularly do. If you're a welder, you don't weld on the, on the holy day. <coughs> if you're an accountant, you don't count <laughs> on this day. If you are, um, well, let's say uh, um, a bus driver or a truck driver, uh, then you're not going to be working on that. That's your customary work. So there is allowance for you to do the regular mundane things of life that you need to do, at a minimum, of course. It's not wrong to make your bed on the Sabbath or a holy day. There's only one day that you really shouldn't do any work at all. In fact, if you go across here in um, <clears throat> verse 31, speaking about the Day of Atonement, you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. If you check with all the other holy days, it says you shall do no customary work or no occupational work. You know, I think sometimes people get, you know, in a, in a right, uh, you might say, uh, zealous way, people want to observe God's Sabbath, and so they, th you know, <laughs> it's almost like they'd never get out of bed. Uh, but that's not the case. Jesus Christ walked through the fields on the Sabbath day. In fact, let me tell you, the, Lev the Levites, the priests, the hardest day of work that they had was the Sabbath and the Holy Days. And I can tell you, for the ministers of God, that's often the case as well. Sometimes having to speak in two different churches, uh, give a sermon in the morning, drive two or three hours to an afternoon service uh, on the first day of unleavened bread. And we did that for quite some time when I was uh, uh, in my early years in the ministry. But let's get back to the story. Let's get back to what we were reading here and notice what it says. <clears throat> it says, verse 8, But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Now, for many of you watching this particular uh, video, it's because you cannot get to services because of distance or of health you're actually watching a sermon on DVD. I know that most of you who are at home watching this particular sermon would, be, would love to be with all of those people at uh, the Holy Day service where you would have enjoyed a, a lovely lunch, uh, you would have had uh, taken up the offering in the morning, uh, you would have had the fellowship and the joy and the pleasure that comes from once again, as it says, convoking or meeting with God's people. And so the holy days are a time for rejoicing. They are special days. They are times where we are able to, you might say, set aside the cares of our life even more than on the Sabbath <coughs> and to rejoice on these days. So as we rehearse these days, let's consider some of the points that are going to help us <clears throat> as we uh, bite into that flat bread uh, over the next seven days, we should acknowledge the deflated nature of that bread. <coughs> it's not been puffed up by yeast or leaven. It is like our Saviour Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became sinless. Notice Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. There's a scripture here pertaining to 
the type of sacrifice and surrender that Jesus Christ made. <coughs> As we read this, just notice uh, in Philippians chapter 2 verse, uh, um, verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ was the one who had created the whole universe, stars and galaxies and solar systems. And, you know, you think of just this earth, the wonderful job that he did to make sure that there was a perfect balance between the oceans and the continents so that they were in, in complete harmony and balance. Uh, he was able to be so big-minded that he could do all of those things and yet at the same time design the nervous system of a mosquito. And let me tell you, mosquitoes have a nervous system. You only have to go to, to swat one and they can anticipate the, the brush of air and they're away. They're just amazing. You think about some of the single-celled organisms, some of the atomic structures that, that make up molecules and, and, and how they react and, and how they work together. You know, we have a great God and it was the Word, Jesus Christ, who created these things. <clears throat> In fact, if we go to Colossians, just uh, the next uh, book along, to Colossians chapter 1, Notice what it says about Jesus Christ. Um, just, uh, I was going to start a little lower down here in, um, in uh, verse 13. Yeah, let's do that. It says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us un into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's God has done that. In whom, that is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. You know, I always find it interesting that, that Jesus Christ created the angels, including the archangels, including Lucifer. And so when Lucifer rebelled against God, and he came, was thrust out of this earth, and then Jesus Christ divested himself of his power and made himself of no reputation and became a little baby inside the womb of Mary, and then grew up obedient to his parents and grew to manhood. And then the very first test that he had was to be in the desert and the wilderness with Satan the devil after 40 days of, of fasting. And Jesus Christ was tempted by this wicked, evil being and called upon to bow down and worship him. What an absolute a front that the created should ask the, his creator 
to worship him. That is a great perversity. And so that's why God has to be sure that we are going to be like our older brother Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ must be living his life in us and we must become like him. Think like him. Act like him. React like him. So in this sermon we're going to talk about this transformation that takes place in our minds between the way we were as human beings and the way we are going to become as spirit beings, as sons of God. <clears throat> so here in Colossians chapter 1, reading on, <clears throat> we read uh, halfway through verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things he may have the preeminence. So this time of year, the Days of Unleavened Bread, is a time for us to harmonize our thoughts, our heart, our actions, and our words with the thoughts, the actions, and the words of Jesus Christ. This is a time where we put out the old leaven of sin and replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. <clears throat> Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that is. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, of course, is the, the chapter about the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. And I think most of us are familiar with the fact that uh, Paul had to uh, judge in the case of the, uh, of the people of uh, Corinth who had allowed a great sin in their midst. They allowed this young man to live with his stepmother. Uh, just a great sin. And uh, so, we can use this to introduce the first point that I want to be able to give to you in this sermon. And the point that I'd like to make is that we need to seek out the spiritual leaven in our lives to find it and to eradicate it. Just prior to the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread, we were busy removing the leaven from our house. <clears throat> we made sure that there, were, there was no uh, bread, no cookies, uh, biscuits, um, nothing at all that had leaven in it. We also removed any leavening agent, such as dried yeast or um, sodium bicarbonate. Uh, we removed uh, those things and we threw them out. We also went through the house and the car, or cars if you've got more than one, and vacuumed up all the old crumbs that have collected here and there over the year in a symbolic way of showing God that we wanted to eradicate sin from our life. Now, over the last few years, I think you've heard sermons where we were told, and rightly so, that we should not go to a great extreme 
you know, that we shouldn't... Uh, <laughs> I remember at Ambassador College, <laughs> you know, the students really didn't have much that was their own. We, we would de-leaven our, our, um, our desk and we would de-leaven our locker where we had our clothes and, and, uh, and our probably under the bed and, uh, you know, under the mattress or whatever. But in an effort to be very, very righteous, I remember some, some guys would turn their pockets inside out just in case they put a, a piece, you know, a sandwich in their pocket during the year. Uh, you know, that was zealous uh, behavior. And so we now would understand that we don't have to be quite as, um, you know, overly zealous. But you know what? I think it's probably time for us to even consider that we should be somewhat more zealous and balanced in a balanced way. But you know what balance is like? When you put something on a balance, it goes down this way and then the other one goes that way until finally they balance out. And you know, I just know that uh, I look forward to the days of unleavened bread and that particular time when I and generally one of my jobs is to take the car down to the car wash and, and use the vacuum to uh, vacuum you know, the car out to make sure that the, the crumbs that got there through the year are vacuumed up. And as I do it, I think about you know, the nooks and crannies where, uh, where the, uh, the, the crumbs can get. And that generally tends to be down beside the, the seat and... Uh, you know, you need to pull the seat like that and get the nozzle of the vacuum cleaner there and maybe slide the seat back uh, to get right underneath it and then slide it forward and come in. You know, just those sort of things are, are demonstrative examples of how we want to show God that we are serious about these times. Once again, you have to, uh, you know, work out what you think is appropriate. I'm not trying to you know, set a whole lot of Talmudic rules up, you know, and say, oh, Mr. King said you had to make sure you slid that seat forward and then slid it back. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that. Just, just use balance and wisdom. Okay, let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> and we're going to start in verse 7. It says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? Easter? No. No, this is the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. And it says, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and understand that this word malice is defined by Paul in this particular scripture. In Ephesians chapter 4, <coughs> starting in verse 31, Paul said to the church at Ephesus, he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You see, these are the components of malice. The word malice comes from the old Latin and French where the word mal, M-A-L, 
is, means evil or bad or wicked. In fact, in the French, uh, sorry, the English uh, coat of arms, which says, on soit qui mal y pense, it says, he who th- that, the latter part of that, he who thinks evil. Because the mal, you know, we actually use the word maltreatment or a malady or uh, a malpractice. So this word mal means wicked, evil and wrong. And so, clearly here it says, let all bitterness, let all wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. The days of unleavened bread are a time for us to reflect on the sort of person we are. It's time for us to think about how we treat other people. How we speak about them. What we think about them. You know, God and Jesus Christ love all mankind. What gives us the right to hold malicious thoughts? To be resentful? to be bitter, to speak evil of other people. And yet, because of the nature of Satan the devil, which so easily comes into us and upon us, we can quickly become like that. You might remember the scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says that sin which does so easily beset us. Sin doesn't, you know... uh, hide away from us and we have to go out and find it and, and capture it and strive to sin? <laughs> no way. You know and I know that sin is right there close to us. It easily besets us. And so the days of unleavened bread are a time of reflection. A time for us to consider. You know, uh, we're, we're allowed to work during the days of unleavened bread on the non-holy days or the Sabbath. So many of us here are going to be going to work, going to university, going to school, meeting with our neighbours, going to see people and uh, you know, go to the supermarket or wherever you go. Think about the way you are during the days of unleavened bread. Think about your actions and reactions and ask, am I doing things like Christ would have me do them? If he was here, would he react the way I'm reacting on the, on the road? Would he gossip? Would he malign other people? Hmm. The answer, of course, is no, he wouldn't. Notice here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, one of the reasons that we as human beings <coughs> develop malice or, or ill will towards other people is that we are insecure. We compare ourselves with other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, I've learned over the years that when people are having trouble and problems in church with other people, they're seeing things at a human level. Now, we've all had problems and difficulties at church with people. 
because there are spiritual forces at work all the time trying to divide and you know, upset people. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. In other words, comparisons are odious. They don't really help you know the problem with comparing ourselves with one another? We either think we are inferior or superior. <laughs> Let's ask the question. If we feel inferior, is that good? No. If we feel superior, is that good? Not at all. Rather, we should all compare ourselves with Jesus Christ. And then, hey, we can all be inferior together. <laughs> But let's understand that our Saviour Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation. He gave up all of his titles. He gave up all of his, the, the trappings of power. Imagine, imagine what it must have been like for his consciousness as he grew up as a child and started to realise that the only strength that he had was physical. In one place he said, I could demand or call upon legions of angels and they would come to me. He had that power still, but he refused to use that power because he wanted to prove to mankind that we are of and ourselves and by ourselves nothing. He said in John chapter 5 verse 19, he said, I can of my own self do nothing. In verse 30, he says that he relied on his father for all the power and all the strength that he needed. So these days of unleavened bread are a wonderful time to reflect and to think about what sort of person we are and to seek out the spiritual leaven in our life. So let's not compare ourselves with one another. Another area that leads to malice, and this is a sad thing, is envy. Envy is a word you don't hear very often, and yet <coughs> it is prevalent at all times in society. Envy is worse than jealousy. Jealousy is where you feel that you'd like to be like another person or, or have what another person has. But when jealousy becomes envy, that desire to be what another person is or have what another person has means that then we start to plot and scheme for the overthrow of that person. We want them to fail. So we start gossiping about them, talking about them, passing on gossip about them. <coughs> and so, as a result, you know, we uh, end up doing Satan's bidding being accusers of the brethren. Let's turn to Romans 12 and see what the, the solution is, what the, the remedy is to envy. Romans chapter 12. Do you know what they call envy? The green-eyed monster. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, how we have these sayings. He was red with rage. Uh, he was uh, green with envy. Um, <laughs> Uh, he's in the blues, he's got the blues. 
Well, I don't know why they say green with envy, but uh, the green-eyed monster uh, can afflict all of us at one time or another. Especially when we see someone advanced above our position, and we don't think that person should have that advancement. Romans 12, verse 15. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. You know, when you hear that someone has just got a new job, and uh, you find out that their salary, you know, maybe they don't, the person's not boasting about their salary, but you realize and work out that they're probably now getting a salary twice what you've been getting. And yet, five years ago, this person was just a, a university graduate, and, and, and you thought they were wet behind the ears, and now you see that they're starting to progress and, and do well, and you're not married, and now they get married. Oh, dear. And then you hear that they've bought a house. Oh, no. <laughs> it's hard. But you see, the problem is we've been comparing ourselves with one another. You know, if we don't compare ourselves, when someone is rejoicing in a marriage or the birth of a child or, you know, an advancement in their work or getting to give sermonettes or you know, whatever it might be, we should rejoice with them. See what it said? It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's compassion, that's love, that's outgoing concern for other people. What's another area of sin that leads to malice or comes from malice? Let's have a look at James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And verse 5, it says, Even so, the tongue is a little member. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, it's just pretty small, isn't it, the tongue? You know, compared to uh, other large uh, parts of the body, the, you know, the, the big thigh muscles that we have, or the, uh, you know, the other muscles of the body. The tongue is just a small little muscle. And so it says here, So the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell or by the grave. It's deadly. It destroys. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. You know, when we read this, we think, yeah, I know people like that. <laughs> but the reality is that we are all like that. We all have a tongue and we've all been guilty of using it unwisely and in a malicious way. During these days of unleavened bread, let us determine that we're not going to do that. That we're not going to get on the phone and talk with our 
friend or our neighbour or our colleague and be malicious. Let us determine that if we hear gossip, the fire of gossip, that we extinguish it. You know, where it says, there is no tale-bearer, the tale or the gossip ceases. In fact, one of the things that's <laughs> most amazing when someone starts to tell you about another person and criticise them, and you say to them, you know, can we change the subject? Or you actually change the subject. People don't like that because you are showing up their problems. And maybe someone's done that to us, changing the subject. And we are embarrassed by the fact that we've allowed our tongue to run its course. Verse 9 says, With it, that is the tongue, we bless our God and Father. You know, each morning we get on our knees and we pray to God. We, we pray to God and we praise Him. We, we um, honour Him. We recognise His greatness and goodness. We pray a prayer of praise and love. and We pray for certain people. Pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for our friends. We pray for the success of the work. And yet the same day, sometimes just even minutes or hours later, that same tongue is undoing all the good that we might have done during that prayer. And so it says, with it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. That's the key to it. Let us not see one another with all our faults and warts and pimples and imperfections and you know, all the problems that we have. You know, I think to myself, I know what my personality is like. Some people like it, some people can't stand it. I've sometimes corrected people and they don't like me. I hope I did it in love. Uh, I know your minister might have corrected you. How did you handle that? Are you bitter now? You know, it says faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So let's humble ourselves at this time and let's examine ourselves. The second point I want to make is this. We need to understand how leaven works and how it is like sin. When we mix flour and water and yeast together, in a warm temperature, you know, somewhere in the 70s, uh, you know, the, the um, high 20s Celsius, uh, the, the flour and the water um, mixed together and the yeast, which is an enzyme, is able to um, come in and feed on the, 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 the carbohydrates that are in the flour. Uh, it, the yeast takes the water, mixes that with the carbohydrate and then you might say digests it almost and produces alcohol and carbon dioxide. Now the carbon dioxide and also some esters, uh, those lovely, that's why when you go past a bakery shop there <laughs> are these lovely smells because you can smell the esters from the, the bread that's being baked. 
but the carbon dioxide, which has swelled up inside the dough to make it twice the size that it was, or even three times the size of the original lump of dough, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, those bubbles get locked in there so that when you put it into the oven, they're retained. And when you take the bread out or the cookies or the biscuits out of the oven, whatever it is you're making, a sponge cake or, um, um, you know, whatever. And then you slice it. Well, it's light and fluffy and it's very nice. I shouldn't be talking about that here now because uh, we've just left that behind. You know, you can actually enjoy unleavened bread. Uh, it's called the bread of affliction. And it is because it's rather flat and uh, it, um, it sort of doesn't uh, have that nice soft texture that you enjoy. But you know, my wife makes uh, an unleavened bread from wholemeal flour, olive oil. That's, she just rubs them together and rolls it out and uh, puts it in the oven. And in our home, uh, we just always used to love my, my wife's unleavened bread. <coughs> So, <coughs> yeast is a leavening agent. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And notice what it says here, starting in uh, verse 17. It says, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, this is to the Corinthian church, my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. You know, the, one of the sad things that can happen, when a, and this happens at times in the churches, in the situation we've got now where we have pastors taking care of four, five and six churches and then they can, they can only be in a church um, you know, once every uh, maybe three, four or five weeks. What happens on the Sabbaths that they're not there? Is the conduct of the membership the same as if the minister was there? Or do some people think, well, he's not here. I'm going to take control. I'm going to start pushing my weight around, my authority. If you're doing that, please consider. Please, please consider that that's presumptuousness. And that's a sin. And if you have had the sin of presumptuousness, repent of that. Don't try and, you know, play the role of the pastor. And uh, so, for that reason, we need to be aware of that particular sin. And that's what had happened here in the Corinthian church. Paul had lived there for two years plus. He'd raised up the church in Corinth. But now, Paul heard about the things that were happening in his absence. There were people who were puffed up. Um, and then there were people who, as I said, were allowing a young man to live with his stepmother. And so Paul had to address things from a distance. In uh, chapter 5, verse 2, he says, I, and you are puffed up. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. 
and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Let me ask the question, where have you allowed yourself to become puffed up in recent times? Have you been given new responsibilities? New authority? Are you recently married? And so the husband thinks, well, I'm now the head of the house. And he puffs himself up. Or maybe the wife thinks, well, now I'm married and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty important and uh, I'm going to bring my husband into line and make sure that he doesn't do this and doesn't do that. And we puff ourselves up into, into some, you know, out of proportion reality. It's interesting. Uh, God has made certain animals that the best defense they have is to puff themselves up. The puffer fish is one. You know, the puffer fish is normally about this big. But he has a mechanism with a valve inside of his chest that he can puff himself right up like that. And his enemies think, whoa, I'm not going to try and attack that big fellow. You see the problem? It's a defense mechanism. When we feel insecure and small, we sometimes puff ourselves up to be someone important. No, that's ridiculous. Let's realize we're just a piece of flat unleavened bread. We're just nothing. You know, God gives and God takes away. You know, one of the things that's a little hard for people as they get older is that they lose some of their capacity. It's hard for a person to become incontinent. It's hard for a person to have to surrender their driver's license when they get old. It's hard for a person to have to admit that they cannot handle their, their finances any longer and they need to call on their daughter or their son or son-in-law to come in and help them. That's difficult. You know, God has a way of treating us and dealing with us at every stage of life. You know, when we're born, and right up until we're probably 15, 20 years of age, we're just a little child. We have no authority, no power. And uh, people treat us that way when we're a little child. That's why we as parents should, we should, should certainly show love and, and respect to our children and, and see them as future adults and, and sons of God. Yes, we have a job to teach and train and even correct them. But let's understand that the human, human nature is desperately wicked and deceitful. You know, I was talking about the puffer fish. Uh, we have a, in Australia, we have a, a, um, a big lizard there called the frill-necked lizard. lizard. Do you know why they call him that? He has uh, uh, some membrane uh, sort of that flaps, uh, big flaps that, that lie down beside his, uh, on the side of his body while he's in a normal state. But you arouse him and this comes up like that so that he looks like, uh, as I said, two or three times bigger than what he is. And that's what we do. 
we puff ourselves up. Galatians chapter 5 is another scripture that we should look at. Galatians chapter 5 in the context of leaven and this is a particular type of leaven. (coughs) Galatians chapter 5 verse 7 Paul writing to the church here in Galatia said you ran well. In other words you you were doing well. You were overcoming. You had uh, accepted the true doctrines of the church. Uh, You'd um, humbled yourself. You'd become teachable. You were praying and studying. You were uh, becoming more successful as a Christian. He said, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. In other words, Satan has deceived you. He has sent someone to try and have you believe that the Passover should be on a different day. Or that the calendar's wrong. Or we should be doing this or doing that. And Mr. Armstrong was wrong here. And Hey, listen, let me tell you something. The living church of God has the orthodoxy of the truth. The living church of God maintains greatly those traditions and those practices and those beliefs given to us by Mr. Armstrong. We practice the form of government that Mr. Armstrong gave to us. We preach the gospel like he preached the gospel. We do the work like he did the work. And we haven't allowed ourselves to go off out on little twigs changing this and that so that we can become someone important. It has been so sad to see good, long-standing, faithful men get caught up on picky twigs. So notice what it says. He says, this persuasion or this doctrine or this way of thinking does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, doctrinal integrity, doctrinal doctrinal faithfulness, doctrinal orthodoxy is a vital aspect and a dimension of the church. And we who are ministers have been charged with the responsibility of maintaining the truth that was given to us and not allowing someone to creep in unawares into our midst and whisper to people out of earshot of the faithful people of the church and whisper some new doctrine or new heresy. If, you, if you're finding someone doing that to you, you tell them. You don't want to listen to them. That is a type of sin and a type of leaven. You know, Jesus Christ said to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they said, oh, What's the problem? Did we not bring bread today? He said, listen, I'm talking about the leaven of hypocrisy. So, we've got the leaven of sin, the transgression of God's law. We've got the leaven of doctrinal heresy. And we've got the leaven of hypocrisy. There are many types of leavens. It's like if you want to make bread, you can make a sourdough bread. You can make a a bread which has normal yeast, you can put special yeasts. If you want to make a bun, (coughs) excuse me, a sweet bread, you might use a different leaven. 
<clears throat> so you can see how important it is that we understand how leaven works and how it is like sin. Now, the third and final point that I want to make is that just as leaven is like sin, there's another type of organism. You know, uh, yeast is a, a living organism. It's an enzyme that works on the, on the, um, the, on the uh, flour in, in the dough. But you know, there's another type of organism that we can liken to sin. And that is the organism which is called the virus. Did you know what a virus is? It's not a complete cell. It's not a self-functioning uh, single cell. You know, we have single-celled animals, we have single cells in the body, like a, a muscle cell or a, you know, a, a skin cell or um, a cell that um, produces, uh, you know, for the, for the blood. And each one of those is self, it can reproduce itself because it has a nucleus uh, with its DNA uh, inside of it. <coughs> and, and then it has the ability to, uh, to absorb the nutrients that come by uh, as, as the blood carries the oxygen and the, and the food so that the, the cell can replicate itself. Well, a virus can't do that. A virus is unable to reproduce itself. It's like a, a parasite. Uh, it's like um, uh, an animal that can't reproduce itself and has to suck the, the goodness out of, <laughs> out of another organism. Mistletoe, you know, sucks all the goodness out of the, the tree, its host, because the mistletoe doesn't have roots to go down into the ground. Well, a virus is somewhat similar. A virus is a, an organism that has uh, DNA within it. Uh, DNA is an acid. It's um, the, 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 the simplest form of the, of the nucleic acid that we have in our cells is ribonucleic acid. Uh, the complex uh, helical um, uh, genes that we have are made up of deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. And so this virus, once it gets inside your throat or you know, some other orifice within your body, it goes to parts of your body and these viruses latch themselves onto a good healthy cell. They penetrate the cell wall they send their soldiers into the command center of that cell, the nucleus, and it's like they say, okay, hands up everybody, we're taking over. And the virus's RNA and DNA goes in there and captures the cell. And so then what does that human cell do? It no longer reproduces you know, the, the throat lining of the throat cell, it reproduces viruses. It's taken over and taken control. And so all these other viruses march out. Da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. Seeing an, another human cell. Aha, capture that one. Make more viruses. Da -dum, da -dum. 
and unchecked, and if your immune system is not strong, what will happen? You guessed it, you die. And what, is the, what are the wages of sin? Death. So just as spiritual sin leads to spiritual death, so a virus can bring us to death. You know, the AIDS virus destroys the very immune system. And so it's oftentimes another disease that takes over the, that kills the person, like pneumonia or whatever it is that the, the person gets. You know, sin is the same. Sin marches into our command centre in the brain and takes control of it. And we have to develop a strong spiritual immune system. And how do you do that? You pray and you study God's word. You find where God says, you know, uh, well, we can go, of course, to the Ten Commandments, any one of them. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's the antidote for the sin of lying. You know, it says, tell the truth always. Uh, It says, um, thou shalt not murder. Christ said, if you hate someone, it's the same as murder. What's the antidote to that virus, that sin? Well, of course, to love one another. Love your enemies. Do good to those who who treat you badly. You know, the Bible is really, frankly, the Bible is one big pill of, of, of um, you know, health and strength. I shouldn't call it a pill. I should call it a, um, a, an instruction book on how to be spiritually healthy. You know, I've just, uh, you've, you've heard me coughing here a little bit. I've just got over a little bit of a cold that I had uh, the last few weeks and my body had to fight and get rid of that virus that had infiltrated and come in and taken control of me. You know what it's like. It's terrible. You know, you could also probably say bacteria are like, are like a virus as well. They do the same sort of thing. But a virus is a little more cunning. A bacteria is just an infection and it feeds on the, on the body in, a, in that way. But a virus is more cunning. And that's why we have to be resolute. We have to be strong in that we overcome sin in our life. So modern medical science has given us this understanding uh, about the virus and we can use that (coughs) uh, to overcome. Let's let's notice Ephesians chapter 6. You know, we do need to develop spiritual defenses and we need to put on the spiritual armor that is talked about here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Huh? There's that word. Wickedness and malice. They are the... That's what sin is, and that's what puffs us up. I don't think any of us really see how sinful we are. We really think we're pretty good. God says that we stink. I hate to say it, but we stink in our normal human state. You know what it's like if you're uh, 
your trash bin gets uh, full and it's a hot summer's day and it starts to stink. Well, we've got to clean ourselves up. We've got to tip, you know, we've got to have the, the garbage man come round and, uh, and take that rubbish away and get rid of it and clean the bin out and, you know, clean our, our house and clean ourselves up. You know, being able to use these days, these seven days, to eradicate and to remove sin from our life is a wonderful privilege. Don't, please, please do not get to the last day of unleavened bread and look back and say, what changed? And then have to admit, nothing changed. Use each day. You might want to take each of the seven days and find seven specific areas of sin that you study about. Let's go back to, uh, we're here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Talks about the breastplate of righteousness, having your... uh, um, waist girded with truth <coughs> our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace the shield of faith uh, and of course the helmet of salvation verse 18 praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints so this is our job now I want to conclude <laughs> with an interesting question or an interesting statement. I'm, I probably should put it in the form of a statement. Did you know that during the days of, of unleavened bread you are allowed just one sin? <laughs> Please don't turn off now and, and think that I'm a heretic. But Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where we can see that God allows one sin during the days of unleavened bread. Um, and we're going to start again in verse 7 therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of you ready? sincerity and truth (laughs) it's the only sin you're allowed to have (coughs) sincerity well I love to play with words but you know sincerity is that sort of open uh, defenseless um, attitude and approach that we have with God where we know that he knows everything about us. We we can't hide anything from him. So why should we try and hide anything from other people? Huh? Let's be sincere. Now, we should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and there's a certain, you know, we need to maintain certain behavioural aspects of our life that mean that we're not stupid but sincerity is just being open and honest 
So let's do that. Let's enjoy the Days of Unleavened Bread. Let's make some special times that certainly look forward to the next Holy Day. But most of all, let us take care of the sin that so easily besets us and replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.